Thank you. Good morning. I moved back in uh, August of 2018 because my daughter, who met her uh, husband, met her while we lived here in Louisville. And then uh, they moved down here from Pittsburgh in 2017 and took our only grandchild. And so my wife wouldn't have anything to do with that. So a year later, we followed her down. And uh, so my grandson will be four in March. I wanted to be known as Pappy, but he couldn't say that, so I'm known as Tata. Don't laugh. Too late. My wife wanted to be known as Grammy, but she's known as Mimi. <clears throat> and my grandson, my wife watches my grandson five days a week. He's always over at my house. and <clears throat> He's always telling me, he says, Tata, you're my best friend. And I want to say that, Tim... You're my best friend. You really are. And uh, one of my best friends, but you're up there. <clears throat> well, it's good to be back. I haven't been here in the pulpit in a while, and, uh, but uh, it's good to be back part of New Life Church. I never really was not a part of New Life Church because I'm a part of Tim's life throughout the times I was gone. So, and I'm very grateful. This is one of the best churches I've ever had the privilege of not only attending, but serving in, and I'm very grateful for that. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and we'll start reading, or reading verse 10 in a moment. <clears throat> While you're turning, I want to tell you a story. It's about a guy who de decided to join a monastery. And when he joined, he had to take a vow of silence. And he was only allowed to speak two words every seven years. And so after the first seven years, the monks called him in, and the senior monk nodded that he could now speak his two words. And so he said, cold floors. And the senior monk nodded at him, said, okay. And he went out. Seven years passed, so now it's 14 years. They call him in, and uh, they nod for him to get, say his two words. And he says, bad food. And the senior monk just nods at him, smiles, and uh, so he goes out. Another seven years goes by, so it's been 21 years now. He comes in. They nod for him to go ahead and speak his two words, and he said, I quit. <laughs> and the senior monk broke his sign, uh, his vow uh, silence. He said, well, that's no surprise. All you've done since you've been here is complain." Now, I said all that to say this, is that 2020 has given us a lot of opportunity to complain if we're known as complainers. That guy, he was known as a complainer, and he only spoke six words in 21 years, and he was known as a complainer. But in the midst of 2020, I know you have sensed, and I have sensed, that God is working all things together for good. And I really sense that 2020 is in preparation for 2021. I've been listening to a song by Elevation Worship a lot every morning in my devotionals, and it's called There is a Cloud that is beginning to swell. And one of the lines says, and in its toe is a brand new future. I believe that there's... I, I always seek the Lord for a word for the next year, and I felt like the Lord speak to me in my time in December and said, Jim, 
son, there's a lot that that is going to. Ah, there's a lot that needs to be done in 2021. And he spoke to me, and he said, "And I just want you to do it. And I just do it. That's my mantra for 2021. Just do it. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful." not only for what you're about to do, not only this morning, but in this whole coming year, but I'm also thankful for 2020. Lord, in the midst of some dark times, your light has shined forth on all of us. Only in the months and years to come, we'll see just how much good you've worked together on our behalf during that time, preparing us and equipping us and empowering us for what you want to do in the future. So, Lord, we will forget those things that are behind us, and we will look forward, move forward to what is in front of us. For what is in front of us is what's going to help not only our lives, but the lives of so many others. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Tim has asked me to do a couple of things. He's asked me to talk about grace which I'm very, very grateful for. My whole life could be summed up in that word, grace. And he's also, in the midst of that, asked me to tell you a little bit of my story, and so I'm going to try to do that in the time that has been allotted to me. And uh, <clears throat> if any of you have heard me preach before, my friend says, I don't need a watch, I need a calendar. And <laughs> Tim didn't smile on that probably thinking I'm wasting time saying all this stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. But grace, you can't get grace without mercy. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. They are two halves of one truth. If you get one, you get the other. To have one, you've had the other. And uh, mercy simply stated, uh, my definition of mercy is, mercy is what restrains God's anger towards our sin. Make no mistake, our sin makes God angry. But he's merciful. His mercy kicks in and it restrains his anger towards our sin and then he allows his grace to kick in and grace is what releases his love towards us as sinners. Restrains his anger towards our sin, grace releases his love towards us as sinners. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, and I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The first five words, actually six, is a familiar uh, phrase that probably a lot, of the, a lot of us have used in the past. It says, but by the grace of God. And I have heard and I probably have said in looking at my situation and then looking at someone else's situation that wasn't as good as mine, they were in some kind of difficult or in some kind of sickness or in some kind of problem, I would say, but by the grace of God, there go I. So I would primarily, in those moments, think of grace as grace as something that 
will help us avoid different catastrophes in our life. We're grateful that whatever happened to that individual didn't happen to us. And even though God is gracious in that way, his grace isn't primarily for that. It's not to avoid something. It's basically two things. Number one is to become something, something better. And then number two, its grace is for us to labor for something that is good. So it's becoming something that is better and grace to start laboring for something that is good. I I run into a lot of people in prisons and on the streets. I help people with outreaches and And uh, I run into a lot of people, when I try to share Jesus with them, they say to me, oh, I've already become a Christian. And yet, while I'm looking at them, they just got done smoking some reefer, or while they're talking to me, they're drinking out of a bottle uh, of alcohol, and you could tell they're very inebriated. He says, oh, no, I already, I, I, I love Jesus. I'm already a Christian. But one of the things I've understood is if you are what you always were after meeting Jesus, then you probably didn't meet Jesus. Because Jesus will cause us to become something different than what we were. Now, ultimately, we will never become perfect, but by his grace, day by day, we are being perfected. And uh, so each day we should be changing from, from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from glory to glory. That there ought to be a different type of glory coming from my life than there was last week or even last month. Because I'm being transformed into the same image, I'm becoming something. Now, Paul makes this statement in verse 10 right after a statement he made in verse 9 where he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. So in light of making an assessment of himself, he says, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, whatever you see of me today, it's because of his grace. I was that way, but now I'm something different. I'm someone else different. He went from being a persecutor of the faith to becoming a preacher of the faith. I mean, oh, that's a becoming. That's a change. Oh, what a change. He went one who, from one who consented to the death of Christians to one who labored to conceive the life of Christ and others so that they can become Christians. One, he consented to their death. The other, he labored to produce the life in Christ in people. He was becoming something. Jesus is full of grace. It says that in John 1.16, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There is grace for every aspect of our lives. 
There's grace for our bodies. There's grace for our minds. There are grace for our family. There is grace for our finances. There is grace for our livelihood. There's, there's grace upon grace. And out of his fullness, we receive that. It's a becoming grace. You can tell when you've had grace, you are becoming something. Something is happening. Your family is becoming better. Your finances are becoming better because grace will cause, will cause you to become. In other words, if your religion hasn't changed you, then you need to change your religion. Because God's the Christianity will bring about a change. Grace is not only for changing us, but it's also for bringing change through us to other people. Paul said that his grace to him did not prove vain. The Greek word for vain is kinos, K-E-N-O-S, and it's defined as making empty, fruitless, or neutralizing. That something happens after you receive grace and you start becoming, but if you don't do something with that grace, you neutralize it. It becomes fruitless. It stops with you. Another Thayer says it this way, that which was given you doesn't become a gift to others. So grace that comes to us was designed to go out from us. I believe it's the obedience to God's word that releases the power of his word. So as we obey, before we sense the power, but in our obedience, we release the power, and the same thing that was done for us, this becoming grace, is then released to other people for them to become as well. So it doesn't prove vain. And he says, I labor more than all of them. Grace will not only change our character, it will energize and empower our actions. Grace not only changes us, but empowers us to bring change to other people. You have to excuse me. It's been a while since I've been in the pulpit. My mouth is getting a little dry. <clears throat> Second Corinthians nine eleven. You don't have to turn there. I didn't give the scripture to Marcy, but it says out of the NIV, it says, "God will make you rich in every way." How many of you like that promise? Just think about it. Make you rich. Now, remove from your thinking, when God says riches, he's not primarily talking about money. When he's talking about wealth in Scripture, he is. But when he's talking about riches, he's not talking primarily about money. It may be on the list, but it's way, way down on the list. Riches, the things that will truly enrich my, my life and in your life, actually money can't buy. Money can buy entertainment, but it can't buy happiness. Money can buy a state-of-the-art uh, security system, but it can't buy peace. So when God says, I'm, I want to make you rich in every way, he wants to make you rich in joy, rich in peace, 
rich in love. And then he says this. He gives us, there's this word in there, it says, so that. And that's very important because that tells us why God is making us rich in this way. He says, so that you become generous on every occasion. Because God wants us to understand everything that comes to us was designed to go out from us. If it stops with us, it's neutralized. It has to have a flow. The difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea only has a river flowing in, so everything becomes stagnant and stale, and nothing can live. The Sea of Galilee has a river flowing in and a river flowing out, and the result of that, it creates an environment where it's teeming with life. So if we as Christians, this grace that has helped us to become, as they, we then immediately look, and here's what you got to, it's a training because none of us are naturally bent towards this. So when I'm enriched in some way, I have to train myself, I've got to believe that on the tail end, right after that being enriched, that blessing, whatever it is, that right after that, there's going to be an occasion for me to be generous. And I've got to be looking for it or I won't, I'll miss it. If God has helped my marriage, blessed it, put it back together, I need to immediately start looking for an occasion to bring that same help that came to me out to someone else. And when you give it away, you get more of it. It says, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together. Any of you ever try to fill a container with, with something and you only have this container and what you want to fill it into seems bigger than the container, but it's the only one you got, so you pour some in, and you press it down, and you shake it together, and then you pour more in, but somewhere in the process, it overflows. And that's what happens when we give away what God has given to us. And all that God gives us, he gives us by our, his grace. He releases it to us. The message says it this way about uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10. It says, it was God given me the work to do, God given me the power to do it. So the work that has been done for you needs to find an avenue to be done, be done out from you. Or it is neutralized. You labor, Paul said, I labor more than all the other apostles, but yet not I, but it was the grace of God that was within me. I'm going to make Tim happy. I'm sorry, Tim. You're my best friend. I want to read one other scripture. It's 1 John 4, verse 17. I love the scripture. I've been meditating on it as of late. It said, but th by this, love is perfected with us, 
that we, we may have the confidence in the day of judgment, and here's the phrase I've been meditating on, because as he is, talking about Christ, so also are we in the world. I mean, just think about that. How Christ was in the world, we can be too. And think about it. He took on the form of a servant. He's the one who said the, great, the, uh, the servant of all will be the greatest of all. He said, I, and I love the scripture, he said, I did not come to serve, but to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for a many. Meaning that, and now we know ultimately it talks about giving his life on the cross, but prior to that cross, on a daily basis, he was willing to ransom anything in his life for the redemption of somebody else's life. And as, as he was in the world, so am I. So I have to train myself, and so do you, that as I'm journeying through earth and I run into somebody that needs... Something needs to be redeemed in man. I've got to be willing to ransom something I have. It may be my time. It may be my money. It may be my wisdom. But I've got to be willing to ransom something from my life in order to redeem something in their life. Does that make sense? Because we didn't come to be served, but to serve. All right. Now, with all that said, I want to tell you, I, I'm a firm believer that all theology should produce testimony. That a testimony of what our theology has done for us. I believe that all scripture should produce a story. A story of what that scripture has done for you meaning that you just don't know it, you've lived it. And when you live it, you have a testimony. Now, I think testimony is aptly named because, number one, you can't get a testimony without a test. And in the midst of that test, you're going to do some moaning. <laughs> you really are. But you're going to come out on the other side with a testimony about what the scripture, you're going to have a story you can tell someone that is going to change their life. That is, in one way, how we release what God has given to us out from us to somebody else. Now, with that, I want to share a little bit of my testimony. It would help if I took the cap off. But before I share my testimony, I want to make a couple of statements about my testimony. Some of you know it because I was here for seven years. Some of you who are new do not. And so it's for those of you that do not, I want to make this statement. <clears throat> I want you to know that I am extremely, now God has helped me, but I'm extremely embarrassed and ashamed of the direction that my life took from the ages of 14 until 22. I wasn't ashamed of it then. If anything, I was rather arrogant about it, rather prideful about it. But I've had a lot of years to sift through and see what those earlier years have contributed, not only to my welfare, but to the welfare of so many other people that my life touched during those years. 
Because in my pursuit of some fast money, in my pursuit of some good times, in my pursuit of some notoriety among my peers, I have left a lot of people damaged in the wake of my life. Some of those people have been damaged irreparably. By that, I mean there are some people today that are alive today that are probably still suffering to degree because they had the unfortunate luck of running into me during their lifetime. Now, where I've been able to make amends, I have. Where I've been able to make restitution, I have. If I knew to do any more, I would. But there's some things in life that no matter how badly you'd like to undo them, you just can't. And in that moment, all you can do is two things. Number one, you can learn to live with it. And by God's grace, I've been able to learn to live with it. But number two, and even more importantly, you learn to redeem it. Meaning that God, because of his grace, can take something that is really bad and use it for something that is really good. For a long time, I wouldn't share my testimony. I knew God had redeemed me from my past, but it wasn't until he convinced me that he could use my past to bring redemption that I'd be willing to share it. And it's out of that kind of spirit and heart that I share it this morning because nobody wants to tell people about their great failures in their life. Nobody wants to tell somebody all the pain they have caused to so many people. But there is a happy ending for me, and there can be a happy ending for you, no matter what your struggle is. So I, I won't go into all of it for time's sake, but I want you to know that failure characterized my life. At one time, up until I was 14, success characterized my life. I was on an upward spiral. I'm one of four boys. I'm the third in line, and I was a good son. I was well-mannered. I was well-respected. I was a good student. I was a good athlete. I was college-bound. I had good friends. But when I turned 14, I started hanging out with people that I shouldn't have hang out with. And I don't blame them. I made my own decisions. But <clears throat> things started changing, and and nothing changed immediately, but gradually I moved from an upward spiral to a downward spiral, where I began to fail at every venue in life. I have failed as a son and as a sibling in that at one point in my life, nobody in my family would have anything to do with me. It took me 15 years to get my dad to speak to me. There was a 15-year period where he would not utter a word. If I called him and he recognized my voice, he immediately hung up. Now, I don't judge him for that. Early on, when he allowed his fatherly compassion to kick in and he allowed me back into his life, I would come in and I would wreak havoc, not only upon his life, but on the lives of my brothers. So he learned early the best way to deal with me was to deal with me from a distance. Fifteen years. It took me 18 years to get my brother, who was two years older, to speak to me. It took me 19 years to get my brother, who was one year older, to speak to me. It took me 25 years 
to get my brother who was two years younger than me to speak to me. Now, by God's grace, I am now the favorite sibling. <laughs> I really am. A couple years ago when I was in Pittsburgh, we were going to have a sibling reunion. And at the last minute, I couldn't make it because of emergency in the ministry. And because I couldn't be there, they canceled it. They said, well, Jimmy, and that's what they called me. They can call me that. You can't. Jimmy. They said, if Jimmy can't be here, then we don't want to be here because he makes everything better. Now, there was a time if I said I was coming, they would have canceled it. <laughs> but God's grace, they helped me become something different. I failed as a student in that in my senior year, I was expelled from high school. When I was expelled, my parents began to strongly encourage me to join the military. They thought maybe Uncle Sam could succeed where they felt they had failed. Maybe the regiment and discipline of army life would somehow bring me back to my senses. So I joined the army. But I failed as a soldier in that I went AWOL uh, 10 times. I had 13 Article 15s, one battalion Article 15, one summary court martial, and one special court martial. And I was undesirably discharged from the armed forces. The vocabulary in my discharge used words like misfit, incorrigible, unable to adapt to military life. And in my war perspective, I held my discharge up like I'd held my expulsion, almost like a badge of honor. At that time, in my thinking, it, it signified my family couldn't break me, the school couldn't break me, the army couldn't break me. What I didn't realize is I was breaking myself. I remember meeting with a, when I was in the Army, before they undesirably discharged me, meeting with a counselor, an Army counselor, and he was telling me something, and I stood up, I said, I don't need to hear this, I'm a self-made man. And as I'm walking out of the office, he says, and you look it too. <laughs> Meaning I wasn't doing a very good job. Finally, I failed as a, a human being. Uh, I failed as a criminal. Before that, I want to tell you, I, I failed as a criminal. I've been incarcerated in three different city jails, in different states, four different county jails in different states, uh, three different military jails, and in two state prisons, all because of going my own way, doing my own thing, living a life that was selfish. But in 1972, at the age of 21, I made the ultimate failure in that I failed as a human being. In a moment, a moment that I uh, will regret for the rest of my life. I lashed out and I took the life of another human being. Now when I did that, now up until that time, I would have been a case study of what a sociopath was. I was becoming something back then and I'm so grateful that God stopped whatever that becoming was. But I could have become a lot worse than I was. 
But I, I was a, a case study in a sociopath in that I don't ever remember up until that moment of ever feeling remorse about anything that I did. I felt bad if I got caught. I felt bad if it hurt me in some way, but I never felt bad for the people, the victims of my actions. But when I did that, something happened, something snapped. It was like all of the remorse that I should have been feeling all along came flooding in on me all at one time. And it was more that I could bear. There is a scripture that describes it. I didn't know it then, having never read the Bible up, up until that moment, never read it. I later discovered it, Proverbs 28, verse 17. It says, a man laden with the guilt of human blood will be a fugitive till death. The Living Bible says that this way, a murderer's conscience will drive him to hell. And that's what was happening to me. <clears throat> now, during the course, now, nobody knew that I had done it. I knew that I had done it. And the knowledge of it was eating me alive. And during the course of the day, this torment was so overwhelming, this torment of my soul. I tried on my crutches to try to numb me to it. I tried getting stoned, thinking it would numb me to what I was feeling, but all it did was amplify it. I then tried, in, with getting stoned, tried getting drunk, hoping it would numb me to it, but all it did was intensify it. And somewhere during the course of the day, it dawned on me. And I'm sure this happened to way more people than it should, but it dawned on me. In the midst of my pain and torment and no other relief, it dawned on me the only way I was going to find relief is if my life stopped. Now, I had never been suicidal up until that moment. I promise you, I longed for death if death would stop this pain. Now, <clears throat> I'm not very brave. I never had a weapon. I never, I couldn't blow my brains out. I probably would miss those anyway. And, sorry. And I uh, couldn't jump in front of a train. I, I decided I lived by drugs. I was going to die by drugs. My victim was somebody that everybody knew. And so we all were, and again, nobody knew it was me. So we're all going to have a wake where we were going to mourn together all the friends, and some family, but mainly friends. And uh, for me, and it was going to be at my house, because my house was the only house big enough to accommodate all the people that were planning on coming. And so, <clears throat> and I was grateful, because I knew everybody that came would be holding some kind of drug. And my plan, I had a plan that I was, during the course of the evening, I was going to ingest as many different kinds of drugs and as many, many drugs as I possibly could until I OD'd and died. That was my plan. But how many of you know God has a different plan? And I'm so grateful he had a better plan than mine. I didn't know it then. But during the day, a bunch of people had called off and said, hey, I heard what happened. Could we come over? And I'd say yes. This one particular girl called up. Her name was Lynn White. And um, 
And she said, Jim, could I come over? I heard what happened. And I said, yes, but I only said yes based on the fact the last time I'd seen her, which was probably three months earlier, I had sold her a fairly large quantity of drugs. So thinking she was still in the same lifestyle as I was, I said, yes, come on over. Had I known that she had become a Christian since the last time I had seen her, I'd have never allowed her in my house. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I just knew I didn't like Christians. My only encounter with them was that rock concert. I'd be stoned listening to music, and you could always count on a group of squeaky clean looking young people who looked like they just came off a Pepsi commercial, all smiles. And they would come up and hand you tracks, and most of these tracks had to deal with, with tracks of musicians and singers who had by that time had uh, died by one reason or another, most of them by OD. And these tracks said these very gifted musicians and singers were burning in hell. People like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison of the Doors. And so I just thought Christians were weird. We called them Jesus freaks with the emphasis on freak. And so I didn't know that. So when she was the last one that got there, it was 4 o'clock, July 26th. 1972 in Vero Beach, Florida, hot day. I was standing outside like a good host, greeting everybody, making sure they had some drugs with them. And uh, she pulled up in a little red Volkswagen, uh, which I was familiar with. And she got out of the car. And as soon as she got out of the car, I, I, there was something different about her. I didn't know what it was, but when she got out of the car, she was beaming. I mean, there was just, her countenance was radiant. She, she was smiling from ear to ear. If she had smiled anymore, her head would have fell off. And she was carrying an industrial-sized book, which I perceived to be an encyclopedia. And I'm thinking, why is she bringing an encyclopedia, you know, to a, you know, awake? And so... So it's about 50 yards from where she had to park, and I'm waiting on her, and she comes up to me, and I say, hey, Lynn, and she says, praise God. And I thought, oh, no. This is the last thing I need. I already feel terrible. And my view was as Christians were just going to make me feel even more ter terrible. They're going to put a guilt trip on me. And so I did not want to have anything to do with her. So I had a, uh, a living girlfriend. Her name was Mary Ellen. And I said, Mary, I said, uh, I said, listen, you go in and you talk to her, but get rid of her. I'm not coming in until she leaves. And so I'm standing outside, and my girlfriend knew how to get rid of people. She got rid of me a couple of times. And so... <clears throat> I thought there would be no problem, you know, but I'm outside in the sun on my front porch waiting. Seemed like a couple hours, but finally about after 15 minutes, I decided to go in to see what the problem is. And so Mary, Mary Ellen met me at the door. She said, Jim, I'm sorry. She said, she's not leaving. She said, God told her to come here and talk to you, and she's not leaving until she talks to you. 
Well, I mean, you know, if you're, you're not familiar with Christianity and someone says God talks to them, that Twilight Zone music starts going off in your head, you know, and, uh, and so I, I, I was pretty intimidating back then, didn't really care about people, and so I, when I came in, I realized our house, there was about 30 to 40 people in our house, and all the seats were taken, people were sitting on the floor. The only place to sit down was on the love seat that seats too, because the Jesus freak, Lynn, sat there, and whoever was sitting there first got up and moved. So whoever sat, you know, so she didn't, there was, the only place for me to sit was to sit next to her. I mean, you know, God was counting on my pride that I wasn't going to sit on the floor in my own house. So I sit next to her, I smack her on the leg, and I said, hey, Lynn, how you doing? Or, no, I said, hey, Lynn, when are you leaving? And... Uh, <clears throat> She starts, she had a Bible, that's when I discovered this industrial-sized book was the Bible. Because she opened it up and she started preaching to me in front of everybody. And not in low tones, very loud. And it's embarrassing me. And, And she's just preaching, she's reading scripture. And so I had heard that if you cuss Christians, that they'll get offended and leave. And so I decide, all right, so I'm going to combat that. So while she's reading, I'm cussing her. And I'm saying things that you shouldn't say to a guy, let alone to a woman, but I'm cussing her. Obviously, she didn't get the memo about Christians getting offended. (laughs) Because the more I cussed her, the louder she got. And so then I would get louder to overcome her preaching and my cussing, and then she'd get louder, and we're battling, which seems like a long time to me. Probably it was like three or four minutes. But I realized cussing wasn't working. And so I had to come up with another plan, and I look at her, and she's only five, one or five foot tall. She maybe weighs 90 to 100 pounds. And so I look at her, and I said, so I can, my new plan is, is I'm going, because right by the door, I'm going to pick her up from the, I mean, just going to pick her up by her arms, take her over to the door, set her down, open up the door, pick her back up, set her outside the door, close the door, lock it. That was my new plan. And so while I'm thinking that, all of a sudden, she stops preaching. And when she stops preaching, she puts her head down. So then I'm thinking, well, maybe cussing did work. That she's thinking about leaving. But that wasn't the case. She was cheating. She was praying. (laughs) She was asking this God that sent her to help her. And I don't know how long her head was down. Again, it seemed like a long time, probably just 30 seconds or 45 seconds, but it seemed like a long time to me, waiting to see what she was going to do. And when she lifts her head, she's crying her eyes out. I lived in Florida. We would call those big old gator tears, just streaming down her face. And she looks at me with more compassion than anybody has ever looked at me in my whole life through those tear-filled eyes. And she says these words to me. 
She says, Jim, you don't have to die for the pain to stop. Somebody already died for you, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, what struck me about that comment, how did she know? Nobody in that room knew the plan, plan that I had. Nobody in that room knew the pain that I was in. How did she know? And the only thing I could come up with is somehow this God who had sent her, somehow he communicated to her what was going on in my life. It's what we would call as charismatics, a word of knowledge. God let her know. And what that did is it moved me from hopelessness to hope. That maybe, just maybe, I don't have to die for this pain to stop. I had nothing to lose. I had everything to gain. And so I said to her, what do I, what do I need to do? So she said, come with me. And we walked until we found a place in the dining room where there was a little nook. Every place else was filled. And I'm, I'm walking behind her. All my friends are, I could hear them saying, where's Jim going? What's he going to do? But I'm, I'm almost oblivious to them. They offered me no hope. She is the only one that offered me any kind of hope. So no matter what it looks like to them, I don't care. So I follow her, and then she says, Jim, let's get down on our knees. And I welcomed that, not because I was bowing before the Lord. I didn't know him at all to want to bow before him. I was wanting to just get small. I seemed to be sticking out, all my friends looking at me. So I got on my knees to get small. And then she said, because she's a good charismatic girl, she said, well, let's lift our hands to God because then we feel closer to God. And I'm a very practical person, and that made sense, because he's up there. Well, I actually find out he's in here. That's why we bow our heads when we pray, because we're talking to the Lord. He's in there. So, And then she says, Jim, pray after me. And basically, I said this, what we would call the sinner's prayer. And when I asked, now up until that time, I felt no emotions except hopeful. That's the only thing I thought was hope. But when I asked Jesus to come into my heart and to forgive me of my sins, this torment, this burden that was crushing my soul was lifted. And in its place was put what I wouldn't have identified these back now. I wouldn't know how to describe it. I do now. But in its place was put a peace that surpasses understanding and a joy that was unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, this burden was lifted, and I jumped to my feet. Now, everyone's watching me. Just think of being there, watching me, 30 to 40 people. And I jump up, and I immediately turn to my best friends in the room. Now, <clears throat> And I, and I said something when I jumped up that when I said it, two things struck me about it. Number one, it sounded foreign coming out of my mouth. Just didn't seem, it's like my little grandson when I do something wrong, he goes, Tata, that's not right. And that's what it seemed like, that's not right. But I, 
So number one, it seemed foreign, but number two, it seemed so appropriate for what just happened. So I stood up and I screamed. I won't scream it this morning, but it's the same words that, that uh, Lynn said to me when she came up to the door. I said, praise God. Now, I don't know what my friends saw, but whatever they saw spooked them. I don't know if you've ever seen 14 to 18 grown men all trying to get out the same door at the same time, but it added, just to say this, it added to my joy. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, and, I, and I, the one, my best friend, his name was Terry Lee, he kept getting pushed to the back of the line because he was the smallest of the guys trying to get out the door. And I looked at him, I said, Terry, where are you going? And he looked at me with a look of horror in his face, and he says, Jim, we'll come back when you're feeling better. <laughs> and I thought, well, man, I feel great now. And I'm almost through, but uh, they all left. <clears throat> I, the Lynn stage, uh, she encouraged me. She said, when I get a Bible, that I should read the book of John first, and and so she gave me some instructions, and uh, next morning, I went to bed that night full of peace, full of joy. Next morning, I woke up and experienced the first miracle of my Christian life in that I woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning. I had never seen 7 o'clock in the morning unless I stayed up that late. I was used to getting up around 3 o'clock every afternoon. That's the life of a drug dealer, staying up late, sleeping late. And so, but I woke up and I was in my right mind. Uh, I didn't know what a right mind was until that moment. My thoughts were clear, and so I made a cup of coffee, went out on my patio, and uh, well, actually I was at somebody else's house, went on their pet, because I didn't want to stay in the house where I committed the crime the night before. So I went out on their patio, and, and the newness of life was overwhelming. I wouldn't describe that. I know biblical words now, but I didn't know those back then. And uh, by that, I mean that the sun was brighter, the sky was bluer, clouds were whiter, grass was greener. I could smell f the fragrance of flowers. I could hear the chirping of birds. Now, you can take this for what it's worth, but as I'm sitting there reveling in this, I said to myself, it's like I've been born again. Now, I didn't know, biblically, that's what happened. The only terminology that I knew was is I got saved. That's what she said, I got saved. So I didn't know that, but as I'm sitting there after saying that, this thought came to me. I later would identify it as what we call the still small voice of the Lord. But at, at that point, it would just be a thought. And the thought went something like this, son, if you surrender your life to me, you need to surrender your life to the authorities. And because I had this peace, you know, the peace of God, the pastor's understanding, just gives you this sense that everything's going to be all right. So that made sense. So I got a shower. I drove up to the sheriff's department, make a long story short. I went in. I made a confession. They charged me with second-degree murder. I ultimately pled guilty to that. And uh, the judge sentenced me to the maximum sentence allowed by law, which was 30 years. 
I was 21 when I got arrested. I was 22 when I was sentenced. I didn't get out until eight years later when I was 30. I did eight on 30. But one of the things that I learned, and I'm just about done, is that was the best decision I could have made, turning myself in, owning what I did, paying the price for my actions. Because if you do that with faith in God, he can do two things. He can minimize the damage, and he can maximize the good. I find you really can't put something behind you until you face it. You've got to face it, and, then, and with God's grace, it'll be put behind you. Now, I went into prison, <clears throat> but the, I started, be, this grace caused me to become something. Prison I was at was the worst prison in the state of Florida, most violent. It was the Changang name for it was Gladiator School. But I didn't allow this grace to stop with me. I sensed everything that God was doing for me, he wanted to do through me to other people. So I started a Bible study, started with three. Within two years, that Bible study grew into a church of over 250 inmates and a population of 800 people. Eight years later, when I'm being processed out of the prison, now that wasn't just me. It was other people I discipled who got the same kind of idea. Don't let what God has done for you and in you stop with you. Don't let it prove vain. Labor more than all. Only you don't have to worry about labor because that grace wants to get out. It wants to empower. So eight years later, and we, we did a lot of things in the prison I won't go into, but eight years later, as I'm being processed out, now, when I was being processed in at Lake Butler, when, they, when <clears throat> I told people I was going to Sumter Correctional Institution, people looked at me like they'd never see me again. They said, Jim, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Having not been a Florida native, I didn't know how terrible. We averaged 230 assaults every year, one inmate upon another, the eight years that I was there. In that eight-year period, I saw eight of eight inmates killed by other inmates. More died, but those are ones I personally saw. And yet in the midst of that, I'm writing a book about it right now. You know what I'm calling it? The Glory Years. I suggest you don't read it. Because <laughs> if you read it, you know what's going to happen? You're going to want to go to jail. <laughs> You're going to say, man, that's why I messed up. I didn't go to jail. Tongue in cheek. But so... But when I was being processed out, as I'm being processed out, they put you in a sally port. <clears throat> Three other inmates or new guys are being processed in. And I'm sitting there listening to their conversation. And one of them says to them, hey, man, have you heard anything about a prison? He saw, oh, yeah, up at Lake Butler, man, they were talking about this prison a lot. It's, it's, it's kind of like a Bible school down here. <laughs> Honestly. It went from gladiator school to Bible school. You can change the very culture of where you live because the grace that changes you can change the culture. Let's stand together. Remember, grace is for becoming. You'll become something different. And grace is for doing. The same grace that helps you to become
is the same grace that will help you to do. So what I'd like for you to do, if you're here this morning, and you, there's some aspect of your life that's not becoming what you want it to become. And you would say to me, Brother Jim, I need some more grace in that area. I'd like to pray for you. Because he continued to give us grace upon grace. Now, there are some things God instantly does. And there's other things that God progressively does. And I love it when he does it instantly, but I've learned to love it when he's done it progressively. Because I know if he started a good work, He's going to finish it. So if there's been something started and you don't seem like it finished, be of good cheer because God never starts something he doesn't finish. What Philippians 1, 6 says, I am very, I'm confident in this very thing. He who began a good work in me will complete it. So if you're here this morning and you would say, Brother Jim, I, I, I need some grace to become in some areas in your life. If you just raise your hand wherever you're at, I'd like to pray for you. Just wherever you're at. Amen. It's a becoming grace. I'm not perfect yet, but I am being perfected. I like who I am today better than I liked who I was last week. Because I have become grace. Father, I, every hand that is raised, I ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, that this grace that Paul says, I've, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, Lord, I pray that you would help them in whatever area that caused them, motivated them to raise their head. Lord, just pour out from your fullness grace upon grace for that area. Lord, give them light at the end of the tunnel. Give them hope, Lord. Let them know that your grace not only gives them a second chance, because it's not every day you find someone who will give you a second chance, let alone someone who will give you a second chance every day. And in you, Lord, we, we find both. So, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you will help them, whatever area it is, for their family, for their finances, for their health, or whatever, for personality trait or character flaw, whatever it is, Lord, I pray the same grace that has helped Paul become something different, help me to become something different, will help them to become something different. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'd like to pray one last time for those of you, and this is imperative, because you don't want to neutralize what God is doing. How you neutralize is you let it stop with you. We were never meant to be a vessel which, which God fills with blessings. We're always meant to be a channel in which God dispenses blessings. And as it goes out as, as a drink for someone else, it'll become a river. It'll become a river. You'll have more, you'll, you give a portion of your just enough to someone who doesn't have enough, and the end result is you have more than enough, and so do they. That's how multiplication happens. So if you're here and God has done something for you, he's made you rich in some way, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your health, maybe in your finances, maybe in your family, maybe he's helped you with depression. 
Whatever it is where you have been felt a touch to the Lord, wherever God touches you, I promise you, you are appointed and anointed to bring that same touch to someone else. That on being enriched in that way, look for it. I promise you, you'll find the occasion to become generous with it. And I'm asking, if you're here today and you say, Brother Jim, I, I need the grace to do. I not only want the grace to become, I want a grace to do for other people. If that's you, just raise your hand. And I want to pray for you. Father, every hand that's up, and I pray we can change our world, Lord. We can change our culture. We can change Louisville. Lord, in the midst of all that's happened, we have the wherewithal. Each one of us carry about with us the Holy Trinity of God. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is in us and us in them. Lord, as you were in the world, so are we. Help us to be that person who will go about doing good and healing all the people that are oppressed by the devil. Father, don't let this grace, this glorious grace that has blessed us, changed us, help us, stop with us. Lord, help us to find a river that we can allow it to flow out. Some family, some person, some situation. Give us eyes to see, Lord, the occasion that will follow our enriching so that we can be generous. We ask this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.